we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Welcome to not just another, but a very special episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille DePutter, and with me today is not just one guest, but several. Before we launch into today's episode, I want to give you a little bit of background on the idea behind it and what we were all doing here. So my high school experiences were a little bit different than most. While most kids might be partying on the weekends or maybe involved in sports teams, my friends and I were doing something a little bit different. We were involved in a subculture revolving around hardcore punk. It was a type of music that was in particular having a moment in the 90s, um, and even more in particular in southwestern Ontario where we were growing up. This community revolved heavily around music, but that wasn't the only thing. There was also a strong emphasis on values and social justice, on activism, on creativity. And so we were involved in a lot of different ways, as you'll hear about in this discussion. That scene and community and the people within it and the activities that we got involved in and the values that it was attached to really shaped me in many ways, and it continues to have a pretty strong influence over my life, my work, and the person that I try to be, and the work that I kind of try to do, including this podcast. And I've often wondered, what would happen if I brought together my core group of friends from that time in my life and invited them to explore similar thing? Meaning, what kind of lessons can we take from what we experienced as teenagers? What can we share that might be useful for other folks who also want to live lives with creativity and meaning and impact and fun? And so that's what I did. I brought together that group of friends and they also generously joined me on the show. We recorded a discussion where we talk about our experiences growing up, how they've shaped us, and what we would want to share with others. You'll hear my guests introduce themselves, but they are Megan DePutter, who is my sister and was also my very first podcast guest. We've got Lucas Neville, Kim Walters, Colleen Burgess, Paul Hammond, and Matt Nishlapidus, who is also my spouse. Have a listen. So... As I said before, you know, I'm I'm so thrilled that we could all get together because we are across different time zones here and all have such busy lives and so much going on. So I just think it's really cool that everybody managed to show up today and, and make time for this and, and have this chat. And I'm, I'm so excited to see you all. And I I have had this idea in my head, this kind of like thing that, you know, I'll, I'll think about it from time to time, which is kind of like, all I need to know about life I learned from the 90s hardcore punk scene because there's so many things in my life and in my work that you know come up for me and I will think back to memories in back in high school of how I learned this stuff or practiced this stuff and you know for me stuff that comes up is things about like the importance of self-expression of 
self-publishing, things around storytelling, around community and, and creating things and being able to put your hand up and participate and make the things you want to make. And so there's all this stuff. And then when I go to talk to people about it, I'm like, oh, there's, I kind of have to explain the whole story around it because I think what we grew up with and that sense of community, the scene we were in is really unique and special. And so I really just wanted an opportunity to recount some of it with you guys at this point now in our lives and also to look for potential opportunities to share and bring out some of those lessons and, and things that we maybe have learned and would would like to give to others. So with that as like a little bit of groundwork, um, I'd love to go around and do just maybe a super quick introduction where you just say your name, where you live and something about yourself, like what you do for a living or that type of thing. So um, maybe I will start to with um, the person who's on my left and looks a lot like me. And this is her <laughs> second time on my podcast because she was my very first guest. Meg. Yeah, thanks. Repeat guest. Um, my name is Megan DePutter. I live in London, Ontario, and I'm an organizational development specialist, and I work in healthcare. Emily Kim Stinchcomb is how you all knew me back in the day. Um, I live in Victoria, BC, and I work for Tawasson First Nation uh, around impact assessment and major project development. Good to see all your faces. Yeah. Should I kick it to somebody? Should I send it to Colleen? Hi, I'm Colleen Burgess, as you all know, and I live in London, Ontario, um, former academic librarian turned stay-at-home mom taking care of my baby. Over you, Matt. Oh, okay. I'm Matt Nishlapidus. I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, um, and I am an artist and musician and um, teacher and a bunch of other stuff depending on what day you ask me and one of those roles being my spouse <laughs> not sure who's next <laughs> the people on my on either side of me have already Paul. spoken me okay <laughs> sure um i am uh, my name is paul hammond i live in uh halifax nova scotia Properly, I live in Waverly, but it's all part of the same same thing. Um, and I am a artist and illustrator, and kind of just work on whatever projects feel fun or interesting, or or will pay me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I'm Lucas Neville. Uh, I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, I work at the University of Manitoba. I'm a, a professor of organizational behavior and work on things related to mistreatment and conflict and negotiation and things like that. And so I'm excited about our conversation today. Yeah. Awesome. I, and like everybody, I don't know, does like such kind of cool and, and interesting forms of work. I, I feel here. Um, so I, and, and as I said, you know, and as you can see, we also live all over the place. So I think it's also just interesting to see sort of where we've all gone to, you know, literally and figuratively 
in our lives from all starting from the same place of going to high school together in London, Ontario. Um, and so with that, I had mentioned that I often am not totally even sure where to start when I try to describe what it was that we experienced when, you know, when we talk about this scene or that with this community, does anyone want to jump in like to respond to this question? How would you describe the nineties hardcore punk scene as we experienced it to somebody who has no idea what it was? I have one thing I want to say about that, which is I was talking with uh, my wife, Carla about this yesterday. Um, and Carla was not involved in like exactly the hardcore scene, but sort of adjacent. She was in a band called Plum Tree. Um, and so played a lot of shows um, at that time, a lot of punk shows and stuff. And we were talking about the our respective feelings of the 90s, like punk and hardcore scenes. And I kind of came out of that conversation realizing that I think it's important to maybe specify that like our experience, the people in this call of the 90s hardcore scene was pretty like, I think singular and like unique in that. And I do think it's like a, a lot of it is about the people that like these people here, <laughs> because I don't know if I really actually believe that the 90s punk and hardcore scene was like nearly as like welcoming and inclusive and loving as like we remember it to be broadly uh that was not carla's experience of it um and i know that was not a lot of people's experience of it but i do think that that was our experience of it and the only sort of difference i can think of is that like we just happened to have like a really special group of friends that and i don't know how that happened but i'm like super thankful that it did happen that way i don't know good point paul yeah if i had to use like a word to describe my experience it would be community but i'm not sure that that's the collective experience of everybody else in that scene but i think you're right paul that we had kind of a like unique blend of humans that made yeah. it what it was and I sort of didn't care about anyone else's <laughs> specific experience. I was like a little self-absorbed teenager focused on my own experience. But yeah, inclusive would be the other word I'd use. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think also that um, it, I don't think it was just us. I think there was yeah. a thing happening in London at that time that was pretty unique. And, and what's funny is the only other person I've met as an adult now who had a similar experience in a similar scene at the same time is someone I know from Louisville. Hmm. And, and I think there's a, there was some sort of relationship. Like I, I've often thought that like Toronto and London, kind of like Southwestern Ontario, you know, if the, if the national borders were slightly different, Toronto would be a Midwest city. And there's something kind of like Midwestern U.S. about our specific little corner of the punk scene and the way it related to all of the bands and the like other scenes that were kind of like in, you know, Louisville and Chicago and 
um, and like upstate New York more so than they were in like other big metropolitan centers, including Toronto. Like the Toronto scene was not like the London scene. Yeah, uh, that's true. And so like, yeah, I think we, we there was something going on in London. It, the people slightly older than us had these relationships with other communities and they were bringing people in and there was like, it was just, there was so much energy and mm-hmm. activity and it was really welcoming in a lot of ways. Excuse me, not every way. Um, and yeah, just like there was just such an, an amazing energy at the time, I think. I, I think part of it might be that, like, not to say that the reason it was the way it was was lack infrastructure, but in some ways that was it, right? Like, we did not have like super well established venues with like professional management companies and booking companies that like had, you know, and it like bands weren't coming to London because it was on the tour list, right? It was all cultivated through like, you know, personal invites and personal relationships. And so there was like, there was something about the scene that I feel like came from being in a slightly like, it was a bit parochial. And when I hear people talk about like, I'm in Winnipeg now, um, and Winnipeg is is also one of those like forgotten about cities in a lot of ways. And so when when it doesn't come to you and when it doesn't exist in like an institutionalized way, um, it sort of becomes incumbent on people to just build it themselves. And so I, I think, you know, when we were chatting before this, uh, you know, uh, on the chat talking about like what this was about, I, I heard people talk about that kind of DIY thing. And that was obviously an element to it, right? So, you know, I don't think it was coincidence that like London, that was different than Toronto. And there was a question of like scale and structure that I think played into that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Halifax sure. has a, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Halifax has the same, the same thing. It's like all the things I love about Halifax's kind of punk scene and art community as well are just... I think products of uh, of like <laughs> living in a province that is like not especially economically um, like doing great <laughs> and uh, and also is far out. Like mm-hmm. you can't like bands have to make a choice to come to Halifax. They don't, um, you know. Whereas London did get lots of shows just because like, if you go, if you go to Toronto and then there's Hamilton and there's, it's like, you know, having done some of that touring, it is sort of a spot that gets hit, but only because Southwestern Ontario is just like this concentrated little area where there is some stuff (laughs) and, (laughs) and Halifax is like, you have to want to go to Halifax because otherwise you basically stop at Quebec. There's no reason to keep going because <laughs> then you get to, it's like, there's nothing in New Brunswick. <laughs> New Brunswick people will kill me for saying that, but it's sort of true. Uh, this is being recorded, Paul. I know. No, there's, there's cool stuff in New Brunswick, actually, but, you know, not, it's like the show, it becomes a question of like, how far do you want to drive between shows? And if it's le- if it's like if you don't want to drive more than like eight hours or ten hours between shows, you probably don't want to go further than Quebec. I yeah I I just to just to even kind of ground this in a little bit more detail. If somebody's listening to this without you know a, an idea of really what it is that we're talking about here, clearly it's <laughs> it's grounded in music, right? So there was this period of time when we talk about the hardcore punk scene we're talking about a, a type of music and bands coming through and coming to london where we were and we would go to shows and that was a big part of our lives was going to see live music 
And then in between that, you're also listening to that music and discovering new bands. And this was, you know, pre or at least very early days of internet and that kind of thing. So we were, you know, using catalogs, you know, like mail order and going to the record shop to actually buy albums or buy them at the, buy them when the bands came in, like, you know, buy their, their record or their CD when they came in. But then there was also around it, a very strong sense of, of values oriented towards social justice um, you know, we had an, an activist group. We were very involved in protests and, you know, various forms of activism. Um, we, there was lots of creativity. Lots of us did, you know, kind of self-publishing and, and writing and got involved in radio shows and just different ways of expressing yourself. And, and when you would go to those shows as well, I mean, it wasn't just us, but it was a relatively small group of people that you would see over and over again. And who I think for the most part, maybe not completely, but for the most part felt safe with and felt that you shared those values. I remember being like looking around me in a small, you know, call the office, small venue that we would go to and just feeling like the band and their message and what they're you know, singing about really matters to them and it matters to me and it matters to all the people I'm with. Like we're coming into this from a shared perspective that we have a worldview and a, you know, sense of like what we would want to see in the world and the kind of people we want to be and the kind of kinds of like justice that we would like to see and the kinds of things that we don't want and that we're, you know, pushing back against and protesting against. So it wasn't just that we all like the same music, but it felt very grounded in like who, who we are and what what we're all about. At least that's, that's how I kind of think about it. There was yeah. a, like my wife and I were talking about like um, the, the sort of interesting moment that the nineties were in terms of like this sense of like pessimism about like where things were at, but there was this real hopefulness that like social changes were like permanent and locked in. <laughs> like there was this sense that we were and, and like, maybe this is just me, but it felt like there was like, we were, there was always kind of like a trajectory and it was always moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of thinking like how different that is from today, where it feels like every win that we get on social issues is just instantly undermined and eroded. And it's like, no win is permanent. And I feel like at the time there was this kind of sense that you could go out and, and like advocate for a social issue and, and make, like really lasting change and and like i think it, so it, there was a kind of a, a yeah. an interesting political moment at the time too and and um you know just real sort of sense that social movements were um intersecting too that like it, what you people had didn't have a single cause that was all overlapping and it was all kind of like moving in one direction and so you know i think it, it there was sort of an interesting political moment that was like kind of in the background to this I, uh, maybe that's not the right description of it but I think that's part of uh, being that's that's the optimism of youth as well, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. like I, so I work in a university. Like I talk to students, and they don't have that sense that, like you know, that a. I think in some ways we were naive about like how much change we could make as like, you know, teenagers that had big heads and and uh, you know big senses of ourselves, but and like. Big pants. <laughs> enormous pants um but you know like i i think there was this kind of like there was a it was a different moment in a way because it felt like 
change could be made in a really local way that like really local movements had this ability to to enact change and that like a win in one area would just get replicated and would cascade and that like all you needed was the the sort of foot in the door and i think there's now like a little bit more pessimism and maybe it's like it was always that way and we were just too naive to realize it but it felt at the moment like it was just like progress was marching in a direction and all it needed was energy behind it right especially from um the teenager perspective like for sure kim yes like some naivete and uh, sorry meg you said that some naivete of of youth but um being a secondary school teacher before going into academic librarianship which i should circle back to is also a profession that attracted a lot of um punk and hardcore kids like many <laughs> many academic librarians were in that scene and and definitely pockets in ottawa and in um in some of the southern states where they had uh, near identical experiences to us, like all straight edge, all in activist groups, zine making, um, practicing um, their own writing and their the reach of their voice in lots of different ways beyond music. Um, so that's really cool that others were having that experience in the scene too. But in terms of that, like altruism of, of the impact that we were making, something that I found as a secondary school teacher was that in the absence of that volunteerism, volunteerism of your own choice, like now the secondary school diploma, you have to achieve a certain number of um, volunteer hours to even get the diploma that was never in our, or in my purview. I don't think we ever talked about that as friends. Like I'm doing this to get something (laughs) like that was just really far removed from um, our perspective. I thought uh, at least in the conversations we had and now it's transactional. It's like, I got to get the 20 hours when I graduate and that it, that piece kind of like, you know, spoils a lot in, in lots of different ways. But in terms of the altruism of, of, of our sort of collective volunteerism co-creating um community and also um art and publishing and the work we did as activists in the absence of that there's just like mass wandering in the secondary school experience like i think we experienced the emotions the depression the anxiety we got all that like all the other high school kids got but um i think without a direction like not being in a band not having a volunteer job you go to plus a job that you go to um, all of those commitments and, and relationships, the absence of those for high school students can, in my experience, just set them adrift. Like there's like, I'm doing what my, I know my parents want me to do. I don't like mm-hmm. the directionlessness, the, uh, ennui, the, um, <laughs> frustration about like, you know, what's my place in the world, all those things. I felt like we got, um, a strong rooting from the community. Um, and I think we, each of us have all taken our, uh, like, I don't see any of us as being radically, um, rejecting the beliefs <laughs> that we maybe yeah. straight edge, but like <laughs> basically <laughs> all of us seem to have continued to cultivate, um, similar values in our lives and in the work that we've chosen to do that. And that wasn't something that we had to do was taught to us to do that. We had to do to get the diploma that um, it's just something we all 
came to and and we ca- it carried us through a lot of things in high school where you know we didn't get heavy into drugs none of us dropped out none of us got in trouble <laughs> with the law our parents were like here have sleepovers together and well you can do anything you want you good kids like it, i think our experience was uh, so, so different from yeah. the average high school kids experience violence. Like we didn't face violence. We had strength in numbers. Like there was so much going on there. Yeah. I, I, I think you're onto something. I, I also think part of it, like when I think back about that time, you know, part of even the choice to, to adopt a like straight edge identity as a teenager to me felt like a rebellion, you yeah. know? And I think all yeah. of these, like, like kind Starting high school in 94, when I did, um, and I think all of us were, were 94 or 95, I think. Yeah. Um, it, we're, you know, you're coming out of this kind of like, like Gen X, uh, like total, like slacker, not caring kind of, kind of like culture in the early nineties, like late eighties, early nineties. And I, and, and I think I, like when I started high school, I, I, I didn't fit in. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends, and a way to rebel against the expectations of my peers, but also of my parents and teachers and stuff, was to reject the typical forms of rebellion, and instead to say, you know what, my rebellion is is like I'm going to be principled to a fault. and i'm going to be like militant about it and i'm going to go out and stay out late as like a 15 year old 14 year old you know i'm going to go to i'm going to go to like see crazy loud noisy bands i'm going to have friends who are older than me i'm gonna i'm gonna like make zines and tapes and music and like just put all this stuff out there um because the because it felt like the normal forms of rebellion had been like so co-opted, like, like they, they were normalized, you know, it was like, it's what was expected. It's what was accepted to a certain degree. And, and I think consciously or, or not, I, I didn't want, I didn't feel like I fit the norm already. And so the normal ways of rebelling against expectations didn't make sense to me. Uh, and instead I found this other thing um through all of you and and like the other people at our school who were slightly older and were already into this stuff um and and also i think a lot of us like brought some of these the stuff into it you know like i know like even before coming to high school i also lived in halifax uh, at that time in in the 80s and 90s and um before moving to london and and I was already kind of interested in like independent music and like the local stuff that was going on. And I think a lot of that is for, because of what Paul was saying, like in Halifax, that was kind of your option, yeah. you know, like there was, there was local or there was TV. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so you get into the, the local stuff. And so when I moved to London, it just made sense to try to find the local stuff again, um, which is how I ended up connecting with all of you with um, Luke first. Uh, and um and just yeah, getting getting into this kind of weird subculture that that I still think in many ways made me who who I am today. Like it's it's the foundation. I love that, yeah. Matt. I don't think we knew how punk rock we were by like not drinking and getting good grades. 
<laughs> yeah. I did not get good grades, so you know. That's, Sorry, uh, just to clarify. Me neither. <laughs> Meg, were you going to jump in? Well, I just resonate so much with what Matt's saying. Like, and it's so interesting to try to think back at that time about what about what drew us, and like, you know, totally as well, Colleen. Like, in terms of the values, like it was really. I remember really connecting with the values and thinking like, oh, I could really stand for something, right? And think about, you know, gay rights, think about feminism, animal rights, and like really connect with, uh, really connected with these um, values and principles and ideas. And it's sort of like, oh, I can um, integrate this into my, my social life, my, this can be part of my identity, this can be part of where my energy goes um but it was also partly a rejection i didn't ever feel like i fit in either i remember those first couple of years of high school just being like where where i do i fit i don't i don't belong anywhere and i remember going to my first hardcore show at uh, someone's uh well basement or garage or something like that and just feeling it right loving the right. music feeling the connection but also knowing that everybody there is um has some kind of shared shared values and yeah it was also this rejection of this mainstream idea of what a teenager looks like or so the, the getting drunk this stuff that just, just did not resonate at all um but and it's like, funny why? oh sorry it's funny how it was a rejection of, of like it was a rebellion and like we also received pushback from adult figures in our lives like parents and teenagers who just wanted you to be normal and not like rock the boat like you know <laughs> <laughs> like whether it's yeah. vegetarianism or whatever like don't push against the the norm um, of what you're kind of expected to do. Yeah. Like, why would you adopt the same rebellion and cultural techniques of your bullies? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. My, my parents actually like who are lovely, um, but they regularly received pushback from their friends who did not believe that all of our friends didn't drink or do drugs. <laughs> Like they, my parents like, would be like, like, it was all a big scam. Yeah. Like my parents would be like, well, <laughs> it, would have been know, clever. it was pretty wild. Like they'd be like, well, you know, we're pretty lucky. We don't really have to, like, we don't really worry too much about Paul because like his friends like kind of don't really do anything bad. <laughs> like they're all <laughs> He's hanging with good and they're not, not really getting into anything. And they're, all of their friends were just like, well, as far as you know, like they're basically really. <laughs> Yeah, like they were all convinced that we were like secretly very debauched. That's a missed opportunity, really. I know, it really could <laughs> have been. Like, yeah, we're straight edge. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. my mom tells this story of how one time she got up in the night, it was like 2 or 3 a.m. She came downstairs, you know, we were probably, it was probably like Cam and me and Paul and maybe Matt. I don't know who else was there could have been a bunch of other folks and like someone was coughing loudly and my mom had this moment of like sounds like retching like someone's drunk and throwing up and then of course she comes down and it's like we're all just making zines you know yeah. <laughs> our true yeah. vice yeah. i i, I want to um 
just sort of circle back and kind of emphasize this point that we're all talking about, Colleen, when you, you mentioned this idea of students maybe wandering around or not really finding their place. And we've been talking about, you know, just sort of tapping into something that is always available to you, as Meg, I think you said, to be able to stand for something. I mean, this is a big part of what I I want to help folks do in in my work and, you know, through the form of thought leadership and maybe it's attached to their brand or their business or so on. But I want them to be able to see and understand that they can consider their values, consider who they are, consider the impact that they want to make in the world, and then go and find ways of expressing that. And maybe it's through writing, maybe it's through starting something, their own initiative or writing a book or self-publishing that book or so on. And I, this is kind of one of those things that I'm I'm excited to, to be talking about because I can see how that lesson, even if we didn't really clearly identify it at the time, that has, has defined a big part of my professional life because you know, instead of just trying to follow the path or wait for somebody to recognize, like to, you know, to hand me the baton or hand me a microphone, I'm like, okay, well, I can start my own business or I can write my own book or I can start my own newsletter or I can start my own podcast like this. And I can help other people do that in in their own ways or using whatever is accessible to them. And that idea of finding your own voice and, you know, attaching yourself to a message as well as part of that. Um, so I'd, I'd love to also like, you know, just kind of pull on these threads of other things of like how this maybe shows up for you in your life or how that translates into lessons or ideas that you would like other people to know. And Paul, when I mentioned this kind of thing in the, in the chat beforehand, like you had specifically brought up the DIY culture and kind of this idea that like, no, it is it, it, anything is possible if you're willing yeah. to spend the time figuring it out. Would you mind just sharing more of your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think I also was lucky because then I went on to art school, which especially, you know, NASCAD in the 2000s was sort of still at the tail end of like the really prime period of NASCAD being this like center for like weird uh wild stuff going on and that and that's getting less and less all the time but like um going from sort of like being a teenager uh involved in you know punk and hardcore and stuff and sort of pr pretty much everyone we knew was like doing it felt like was just doing something <laughs> cool or something that I had never seen before. Like I remember going to Chris, Chris's house, Chris Finn, uh, uh, and just his whole bedroom floor was like covered in like all the pieces to make like 30 zines, like 30 discrete zines, not 30 copies of one zine, <laughs> 30 distinct zines each with their own like theme and they were all being worked on at once and i was just like i've never i've never seen anything like like quite like this i didn't really know that you could do that like i knew that um uh, yeah 
Yeah, I met Megan Cam before Chris for sure. And like I had seen you guys doing zines and that blew my mind. And then seeing other people doing it, it was just like I I didn't really realize that you could just you could just do it. You could just sort of be like, I want I want to have a like I want to put my ideas into a book and then share it with people. And like you don't have to wait for someone to invite you to do it. And you don't have to wait for someone to like offer you the resources to do it. You can just do it for like nothing almost um and then you know like seeing sort of friends who were older than us who had like screen printing operations that like i i at the time like i thought that was magical (laughs) i was just like i remember going and watching and and just being like you can just make a shirt like a real one (laughs) (laughs) and and it just has anything you want and you could draw it you could do whatever it could be anything and that was very like affecting for me it really kind of just like broke these ideas of like um i don't know that there was like a right way to do anything and then nasca did even more for that because i just like lived in houses with lots of like way too many artist roommates like at a time (laughs) like uh all working on weird things all doing projects like just sort of like almost like not competitively but almost being like oh you guys are doing that well okay check this out what like the weirdest possible things we could think of like i remember being like like hey what if we what if we turned our attic crawl space into a motel and we did it, and there was not a good reason for it, but we thought it would be funny. <laughs> and we did and we did charge actual real adult strangers money. And they stayed in our crawl space, and then I made them breakfast. I still remember this. I remember you doing that. And I, I it's one of those things that stands out where I'm like, remember that? Like that's it's such a perfect example of this kind of like, you know, it's 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 weird, but it's also like it, it's so creative and it's so challenging of these norms of how you have to do things. Yeah. It's just like a, it, I think I just had this general like feeling of like, why not? Like, is the answer to any question is why not? <laughs> like, why not? like there's a, <laughs> there's this comic that I really like called Blind Alley and there's uh, one there's one comic of it that's basically just it's all it's like peanuts but like updated um but very much still the same sort of like introspective like kids having like like philosophical crises (laughs) and stuff and uh there's like this one that's a kid in a field and there's a broken down car and he's just smashing the car with a baseball bat and then two other kids come up and they say why are you doing that and he just looks at them for a second and he's like, why anything? <laughs> <laughs> and I always feel that way. I'm just like, yeah, why, why not? Like, it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. I mean, as long as it's good and nice and. Yeah. <laughs> not, we're not literally recommending I'm, going no. and smashing car windows. No, no. But Don't I, you think the music scene was like that too? Like yeah. being mm. someone who um, took music lessons and then straight into grade nine was like 
oh yeah, I'm obviously in a band with no talent. And then I go into like my second band of arguably no talent. And I never thought of the bands that we would go see like, oh, this is a piece of shit. Like we always <laughs> found this like value in the music that we were seeing and consuming and, and making ourselves. And some of those bands, um, you know, like, yeah, definitely there were some older kids or, you know, young adults in those bands who had carried on to make that their thing and their touring. But even at our own high school, there were, you know, the idea of a garage band that then goes on to tour mm-hmm. It was like a reality of our lives that is very unique. Like, it, it, that's not how it usually goes. You don't have no talent, get in a band, play in the band band makes albums does recordings makes merchandise tours like that's pretty special and um i mean that that's the basis of punk anyway like you don't have to have your classical music training um to play any of the instruments and i know that we've joked looking back on some of our music collection that it hasn't aged very well but at the time yeah. we, <laughs> we were hugely moved by this by this music that was so accessible you could join it yourself i don't know why we all decide didn't decide to do a band together we're doing other stuff but um the fact that you could be in bands and those bands could have impact beyond your own garage and your own friends is so amazing and rad about that scene yeah yeah and and that is another concept that i i really often wanted want to teach people because especially when you look at writing and i think in communicating in general but especially with writing people tend to be very hesitant can i do this am i good at it they want to know that they're good at it before they do it and there's a couple things i I try to sort of work against there or or challenge and and one of the the things is first of all that you know you have to be good first like you can do a lot of things if you with a really kind of mediocre abilities and you can, you know, find ways of making it better, you know, sure you're trying to do something professional or effective and you can find ways of making it better, but you don't have to have all of that talent or skill yourself. And you certainly don't have to have it before you start because that's not the way it works, but also that you don't even have to be great at a thing to have impact. Like a piece of writing does not have to be brilliantly, artfully, skillfully communicated. You know, plenty of things can and do have even typos or grammatical inaccuracies or what have you, and still have an intended meaning and an impact. And I, I think that's a great example of like, no, things could, you can influence someone else's life or make an impact with your ideas and message and voice without it being quote unquote good. Yeah. I think, I think one, one thing I learned in that scene and I don't, it's not unique to the scene. Cause I think as a few people have mentioned, you know, like, like, like punk and DIY culture and stuff goes like back way further than our <clears throat> experience in the nineties. Uh, and embodies a lot of the same ideals along the way. But one thing I, I really learned that really, that I think it sticks with me a lot is that, um, is that you can, you can make things and those things are valuable as community building, as personal communication, as ways of making relationships and just like being a person in the world. And that, and that like making a thing is not a product, you know, like, 
Like, I think we, at least I, I reflecting on that now, I think like one of the big things I learned is that like, you can make, you can make music, you can make a book, you can make a zine, you can start a group. And those things don't have to be products. Like, like the people who then listen to it or read it or whatever are not consuming your product. They're, you're having an exchange with them. Uh, yeah more like a conversation or like a friendship or, or like extending the bounds of your community. Um, you're expressing yourself. And, and we tend to think so much, especially now in, in terms of like product, you know, you make music and you have to put it online and it has to be for sale and you have to like, or, or you, you know, if you make a zine, it's gotta be on Etsy and you have to figure out how to like cultivate your audience through social media or, news email newsletters or whatever it's like no no you can just make a thing give it to a f- bunch of people and and they'll get some meaning out of it and the best outcome is that then they make something they give it back to you mm-hmm. and and you have this exchange of expression um which is really beautiful and human and like not capitalism yeah you know I- we were talking about it earlier as like a diy thing but as i'm listening to you i'm thinking part of it is is almost like a it's an it's an amateur culture. Mm, yeah. it's, the, it's, it's the idea that like you should do something for the joy of doing it and for the for the meaning it makes for you and a small number of others, and you don't have to be great at it. And mm-hmm. and so like yeah, we I don't know cooked well probably burned chili at at our houses for food not bombs and like recorded bad albums and and made zines of bad poetry but you know so i was thinking about one of the things that i i've uh, been talking with others about recently is like the decline in doing things as an amateur like no people now either they sing professionally and like that is like who they are they are a singer they're a musician and that's like their one focus or they don't do it at all. And, and, and I think about like how many things we just kind of like, yeah, you try your hand at a bunch of different kinds of things and, and you didn't have to think about the saleability or the quality or, or anything like that. So I, I think it's like not just doing it yourself, but doing it without having to think about like whether it's actually good. And and I think again that comes from like not having a right way of doing it, not having a a system for making these happen these things kinds of happen. I, I just go back mm-hmm. to like being with Paul in Halifax and cleaning out um uh, screen printing frames at like a 24 hour car wash. Cause it, it just, <laughs> yeah, it was like, you did that with me. <laughs> yeah, man. So, but like, yeah. it, it was just sort of like, of course you just sort of make things out of whatever's at hand because it's not only like, that's the only way and it's DIY, but it's because it's like, it doesn't really matter if yeah. it's great. And there was and like, it's fun. This, yeah, it was like a star system around like who put energy in. Like, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't like who was good. It was just like who was dedicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've always thought of it in ter- just in general, like in terms of like, um, I don't know, just like wanting to like experience like as much as I can. Just wanting to like, just sort of being like, you know, in my 20s being like, I want to get into screen printing. And my, I lived with, uh, well, again, I lived with a million people, but one of them was named Seth at the time. And, uh, he, he was playing in the band and I was playing in a band and we were making little like photocopy posters for 
our own bands and stuff and sort of became friends when we became roommates. And then I think we both went to Montreal and saw all these like screen printed gig posters by this group called Seri Pop in Montreal and uh, kind of blew our minds. We couldn't believe that someone <laughs> was putting in the energy to like hand screen yeah. print posters that go up on a pole that eventually get ripped down and stuff. But mm -hmm. we just came back and we were like, well, we got to figure out how to do this. And we literally just basically like bought a little kit, ruined our bathtub in our rent rental apartment, like doing this photo emulsion stuff and didn't have a normal, like a screen printing squeegee. We, <laughs> we screen printed it with a window squeegee that we bought at the gas station. <laughs> and it never occurred to us that this was like not something like it wasn't like the right way like we knew it wasn't the right way but it was like the whole idea was like but i want to do it and and i'll be happier like i would rather just like just do it just like figure yeah. out a way of making it happen uh because i'll be happier if we do that than if we don't exactly know? yeah a hundred percent just actually just getting in there and doing it and not having to have permission or a whole template or someone else yeah and, and the experience of it just like of everything like just sort of being like well what if i want to go on tour with my band and i don't know how but like i can email venues or friends in other provinces and see if they know people and stuff and it's just like it's probably not the right way of doing it but it's like the experience will be fun and i want to do that before i'm not around anymore so i'm just going to do it I mean, that may, that, that remains again, a, a big way of how I, I do things. And when I started my podcast, I had um, someone else who I, who I really like and, and respect, but he had kind of, you know, recorded a few episodes of a podcast and he's like, well, but people said, you know, you need to have 10 before you, you launch them. People need to be able to binge listen, et cetera. And he's like, I, I don't have time to create 10. I can't get to 10. He does. He, he, he doesn't have it. Those episodes that, you know, he didn't, didn't share them, um, didn't get there. And I'm like, well, I'm starting mine one at a time every couple of weeks and slowly it will build and it's not going to be, might not, you know, be perfect or might not be doing it totally again, quote unquote, right. But like, if we just jump in, we can make it happen. Meg, you've had your hand up for a while. I'm, I'd like to hear what you have to say about all this. Yeah, thanks. I going back to like Matt's points, I think that there's a couple really relatable and important pieces there and building on what you guys are saying, you know, one is the satisfaction in the process and it's, you know, living in this capitalist um, world that, that focuses on productivity and, um, you know, <laughs> and making money, right. So much on what, what can I get out of this? I'm going to put my energy into something. What can, what kind of return am I going to have on this investment of my energy and we forget about um you know what satisfaction there and, and the value of that of making things right of yeah. creating and co-creating and engaging together to figure things out and make something and i mean we've got some artists on the call you know i work in a very different world i work in in healthcare right and the, the word that's come up a couple of times is fun. Like it's almost like that, the value of fun as an adult 
um, it's just like not, it's not part of, of the regular vernacular or, or discourse, right? Um, but it's so important. And then the other piece is around connection and what you get from like making a zine and you put it out in the world and somebody reads it or making music, like it's partly about connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with the joy of connection that came with going to hardcore shows and like you weren't necessarily you know talking to everyone but you'd feel like you're a part of something there's this feeling of connection and belonging and i think a lot of you know whether it's making zines or making music or attending shows or attending process uh, protests like a lot of it is around connection and the funny thing is like even though we live in this capitalist world that doesn't tell us this we know from lots of research that connection is actually um critical to our lives to our joy to our longevity to our health even our physical health so it's just important i think to to recognize that that value i know when i've looked at at times in my life when i've been unhappy in my career and been like how do i bring more joy back i have thought about that time in my life and thought about that joy that i've had in that the creativity and the the pleasure that comes from making stuff and mm-hmm. co-creating with other people. Um, Kim, I feel <laughs> like all of us, everyone else now has shared some type of lesson here. What's your response to all of this? I like what you just said, Megan, and maybe I'll self-identify as like the least artistic and creative of the group so i i bore witness to much of that creating but was not necessarily part of it so i I was kind of trying to find like my my lesson or my application to adult life through that and meg what you just said resonated with me also in a very different career path i guess um but what i took from that time in life was a couple things one like you said does that focus on relationships so i'd say that's like 90 percent of my current professional work at least um and just something that i really value and try to bring into it and then paul what you were saying i think it's just like finding that art of the possible yeah and getting that like that confidence to explore that as a young person. And I, I came into this scene maybe a wee bit after you guys. I did, went to a different high school for grade nine and 10 where I did not fit in. I actively did not fit in. <laughs> I was like the only vegetarian. People like shove hamburgers in my face at lunch. It was a whole thing. And I felt very lost in that and very much like I didn't have a voice or the voice that I tried to have didn't matter. And I have this like distinct memory of, I think it was like grade 12 in our high school together, having found all of you fabulous people. And I don't even remember what the class was, but I remember like actively participating in it and like putting up my hand and challenging ideas and having this moment of being like, whoa, I was like 14 before I could order my own like chicken nuggies at McDonald's. But here I was <laughs> like speaking up and that was unusual for quiet little shy me at the time. And that's something that I think is carried out in various ways through my life in a really valuable way. Kim, I was thinking about that sort of like how people get involved. And I think that was one of the other things that I took away. (laughs) Because like, you know, I wasn't in a band. Like I 
I guess I contributed to zine, but I wasn't the maker like many of you were. But one of the things that has stuck with me, and I'm wondering if one of you might actually remember what band this was, but I have this vivid memory of a show where some band who had played in London before came on stage and, and they said something like, oh, who saw us last time we were here? And there's you know, cheering as there would be. And then they were like, who's seeing us for the very first time tonight? And then there's cheering. And it was like this, it was so corny, but it was like, it was clear, like it was exciting to have new people in. Right. Mm -hmm. And and there was this kind of almost like missionary zeal that like if, you know, if we were we were out to win hearts and minds. If like we brought a new recruit in, if you could get <laughs> someone new to the activist meeting or like bring a new person into the show or get someone excited about zines like that was a win. Right. And yeah. so I, I, that's something that I've taken with me is like, how do you create hooks to involvement and how do you sort of meet people with it where they are and like create interest and, and bring people into community. And like, I, I want to go back to like Paul started us off with like, I think a pretty important reminder that like our experience is not necessarily everyone's experience. I think, you know, like, we don't want to be too nostalgic about a period of time that was probably not great for a lot of folks. But I think relative to what was happening in kind of like mainstream culture, I think there was this real sense of like, how do we get people involved? How do we include people? How do we create space? And so I think that's something that like I keep returning to even as an adult. Yeah, I, I feel like part of part of that feels related to me. Um, to the way that we approached making things and sharing things as a as a personal expression and an act of of like coming together rather than a product because it, along with that you also lose the competition mm -hmm. so like i don't care if tons yeah. more people start coming to the shows and forming bands that's just better for all of us it's yeah. not it doesn't feel threatening to my position or you know or my ability to keep doing that because there's no limit we can all do it mm -hmm. yeah feels like there's like sort of the umbrella thing that whether you are a person who is a an artist or a musician or not, like there was this larger umbrella thing that we all took out of it, which was that was like this like veil of capitalism was like pulled away. And you could kind of let's like all of us just got this glimpse of like, oh, that's nothing. Like <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's not the important, not that it's actually nothing, because it obviously has huge impact on our lives. But it's but you like, don't have to follow it all yeah. of the time. Yeah, yeah, you can you can come away with a feeling of like that's not actually the measure of value for almost anything that I care about. And so I can like that's freeing. It just means you can just yeah. move forward and do anything you want and it could be art or music but it doesn't have to be. It could be activism, it could be working with uh different communities, it could be like working in libraries and stuff. It's like, because suddenly you can see that like the sort of dollar value <laughs> assignment to everything is actually not the thing that matters. Yeah. I want to um, just speak or draw upon what Paul and, and Matt said earlier about like the, the reason for the thing and a memory that really stands out strongly to me um, um, on that um, thread is being at a propagandi show and buying something, probably a seven inch, but maybe a shirt or something. And the person selling was like, yeah, we do, you know, like we can do a trade. And I hadn't, that had never happened to me before. And like, a, you know, <laughs> otherwise 
yeah. um, consumerist culture environment, like that I could give them something that I made for, for something that I really wanted and valued. And, um, and then that happened again, like at, at other shows. And I, I thought, and I'd seen that happen with friends, like giving um, their music to each other and thinking like, that's incredible. I'm at a show and, you know, this friend is just bringing lots of seven inches and getting someone else's music and how excited they were for that and recognition of, of value that you think my music's that good. I think your music is that good. We're going to give our thing to each other. That's so incredible. And then that got me thinking when you're speaking about you know, like the reason or the value of something about how much um, love we shared between each other in exchanging mixtapes. Like mixtapes were such a huge expression of, of love in our friendships or, you know, teen relationships too. But that, that's something that um, I valued so much from all of you. Like, I think I got a mixtape from all of you at some point or another. (laughs) And, and that we um, put a lot of thought into it and time into it and, art into the you know the cover of of the cassette and um it's something i continued on with a friend i still make uh, a mix little cd but we're gonna have to evolve beyond that because i recently lost the technology to do that um (laughs) but making a a mix cd for someone um every christmas is like a continued expression of that it's a small example but i remember um just how valuable those were from each of you and and what um that that sharing of that music was like i don't i don't know if um it's a common experience um today with sharing digital files maybe it's the exact same but the idea of like um the thought into the order of the of the music um which songs how the order went like there was a lot of of thought and care put into those um for the most part it was pretty obvious and i think that's a really incredible way that we showed love to each other in the in this group and beyond colleen your comment about mixtape just like triggered paul you made me a mixtape once and that i wore that thing out it was like the best mixtape ever it was super long it had a ton of music on it and I loved it so, so much. And you did the artwork for it. It was awesome. It was like my favorite. And it got me into so many bands. It's awesome. I would <laughs> love to know what was on that. I, I, <laughs> I don't remember. I do remember having like a, like a personal sort of like belief that if you're going to do a mixtape, you have to get the longest tape possible. <laughs> Yeah, like the 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 90 yeah, or 120, even. like the 120. 60 was not worth yeah. it. Don't do 60. This was probably a 120, and it was it was uh it was just gold. But um Jam, I still have a mixtape you made for me. Your you Quebec. Do? Yeah. I think I rocked that like driving out to move to BC. Just oh my god. Wow. So curious. I think I still have them too. I, I'm pretty sure I have most of, of mine too. We still have a mixtape. I I have a um a tape that that chris finn made that was like a recording of a radio conversation of a bunch of a bunch of us talking about straight edge on on the western radio station i haven't listened to it in 20 i remember that it was um yeah and and like you know feminist issues and stuff yeah 
So yeah. great, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say something around the inclusion and exclusion, because I was thinking, Luke, about your point around asking who's seen us before and then who's new and like being so inclusive and like, you know, inclusion is an important topic in, in my work and in healthcare right now and thinking about how to, you know, especially around like, there's so many new nurses, right? And there can be such a... Um, this terrible line that um, nurses eat their young for breakfast and um, you know just thinking about like how can we foster inclusion for folks who are who are new and it just reminded me of um, experiences of inclusion and exclusion that we had in the scene and one the best one of inclusion was of course when we started area our animal rights group and we had, we, we publicized, you know, we're going to have our first meeting at the local library and everybody come out. We're going to decide, decide what's important for this group moving forward. And so many people showed up, right? We had, we were shocked. Yeah. Thought, Is anyone going to come this? And the room was just filled. And I think what was so special about it was that folks who came, they were not our friends. We weren't cool. They still came because it was like, we have this shared values, right? We can, <laughs> yeah. I see you trying to do something important and we're going to come out. And there's it no like benefit to us. <laughs> it would be cool to be seen next to us or anything, but like, we're going to come out and support you because you're doing something that's, that's of value. Um, Big, just, can I yeah, just interject please. really quick? Yeah. I came to that meeting and I think that's actually how I became friends with you and Camille. But to suggest it, no, I thought you were like the coolest. I saw you before <laughs> that. And you were like, I, so did too. I was like, I get to be in the same room as like the Depotter twins. Oh my God. Yeah. So, just, yeah, your versions of not being cool were incorrect. Just wanted to point that out. I, I very clearly remember uh, seeing you guys walking home from school and being like, that might be the two coolest people I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> totally uh, yeah i was very yeah, intimidated only briefly because then you i think you guys talked to me and we were really nice <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately we're coming close to the end of our time um and i i want to do just kind of like a little sort of like check out you know final thoughts kind of thing but before we part just from each of you um so it doesn't have to be anything specific. If there's anything else that you've just kind of been thinking of that you just wanted to, to comment on, if there's a final sort of lesson that you would want to impart, if there's like a quick memory that you want to share, whatever it is, that's cool. We'll just kind of do like final thoughts. Um, so uh, I will, I'll start the opposite from where we started. Um and when you're done saying yours, just say a name of somebody else so you can pass the baton. Um, so, uh, Kim, if it's okay, let's start with you. Sure. Oh, final thoughts. How to summarize that whole part of my life in a minute or less. Um, I think it probably is just rooted in gratitude to all of you for like <laughs> letting me be a part of your scene. And I think it's a unique experience. You know, a lot of people are like, you couldn't pay me to go back to high school. And I was like, high school ruled. <laughs> we had all the usual teenage nonsense, but that was really where I like found my people 
more so than I think I have in any other part of my life. And you are those people. So even though I haven't like spoken to somebody for probably a decade or more, I'd still very much in my brain mm-hmm. consider you my people. Um, so yeah, just grateful that that, that happened. Cause I think that's pretty unique experience at a pretty formative time in life and where there's a lot of other hard stuff going on in life, but it was always just like such a safe and welcoming and inclusive place to just kind of figure out who you were and what was important to you without judgment or worry of, you know, friends talking behind your back or there was just none of that. So I guess just thanks for being who all of you are. Oh, I'm supposed to choose somebody. Um, (laughs) Matt. Okay. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this, this has been really great. I, I think, you know, in terms of, of the, the, focus of the conversation today, I really feel like this idea that you can just do the stuff you want to do. You know, you can, if you want to make something, make it. It doesn't have to go anywhere. It doesn't have to become a thing. It doesn't have to earn money. You don't even have to be really that good at it. And it's still worth doing. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of convivial idea of just like being a whole human being and putting that out into the world and finding other people who, who have, you know, who, for, who find meaning in it. And then you can find meaning in their expressions and there's enough space for all of us to do that. It's not competitive. It's not scarce. Uh, all of us have the ability to, to express ourselves and make stuff and, and be whole human beings. Um, and I'm really grateful to have had for a time in my life, a community that appreciated and fostered that. And, um, you know, for all of its problems, which it also had, um, and all of the inconsistencies, you know, our experience was different than other people's. Um, but I think we we found each other and that was really special. And we, we created a space where we could um, explore ways of making relations and community and expression outside of the kind of dominant cultural systems that that, you know, we still struggle within. Uh, oh, yeah, now I have to pick someone. Uh, how about Colleen? Um, yeah, I, what you guys have said so far really resonates so loudly. Yeah, again, yeah, totally so grateful that we had those relationships and friendships. Um, so grateful for that exposure to um, a value beyond uh, what something is going to do for you in volunteer work and activist work in um in creating and co-creating things um that's that's really carried forward um i guess my um last thought back to that um high school teacher mode and reflections on on high school the the thing one thing another thing that really stands out so strongly for me is um it's such a buzzword for all industry now but like this idea of critical thinking um as being something that was happening so strongly outside of the classroom in our lives is something that I'm so grateful for. Like we, when I think about the kind of arguments or fights we had with each other or the fights we had with other people or uh, hurdles that we had to overcome um, so much of my high school experience, I think about is outside of the classroom and outside of um 
any kind of structured for me learning experience that I was, you know, meant to be having or that I was graded on, even though grades were so important. I was like, must get straight A's. I still had this tote and I love school. Like obviously never left until I had my kid, but um, the idea of all of the learning happening outside of the classroom and outside of any kind of formative formal learning environment or structure uh, was so, so key in um, developing a capacity in critical thinking, you know, even, you know, in dialogue with my sister about um, those years, like, or even when they were happening at the time, you know, the idea that I remember telling her once I had this argument with Luke about, you know, um, where like it was total boiled down (laughs) argument was like, he was advocating for, um, NASA and space exploration. And I was like, but there's still people who are starving. How can we put money into the space, the aerospace plant? And like this kind of argument. And then earlier in the week and I'd had fight with Cam about veganism and, and she was just like, I can't believe this is stuff that you nerds are so (laughs) concerned with. Like it, it just was not, um, and from what I gleaned to in teaching high school, like there's, there's other really powerfully oppressive aspects of how you look and the makeup you wear and the shape of your body and stuff that I feel like we really bypass to deal with some really cool other lifelong serving <laughs> skills like critical thinking that um, I'm, I'm so grateful for and exposure for sure to early feminist ideals in that way, because I don't know that we ever talked about or worried much about makeup other than like putting it on each other for, and the boys too, for formal events and that kind of thing. It was like, for sure there was an aesthetic aspect to our scene, but like it really was so androgynous and free of a lot of um, pressures that, yeah, there were other pressures, but that piece not being there and a focus instead on our minds and what we were doing with our minds. Um, um, is just what I think about when I think about those times. Uh, Meg. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, that's so true. That's a, that's a, such an important piece that we didn't even touch on. Like being female growing up as a teenager, there's so much emphasis put on your body and your appearance. And we're just like, you know what? Like to hell with that. Like we're going to be fun. We're going to be playful and creative and we're going to play with gender and we're going to play with, with uh, our presentation and, and have fun with it and not, and, you know, not feel like we have to ascribe to any of those beauty ideals at all, um, which was so freeing. And as you're talking about that, and I'm thinking too about, you know, what Matt said, like, I've got my daughter turned six in like a week and she's super bright and creative and smart, but I already see how school and our environment is already like, you need to get things right. It's good to be right. It's good to be correct. And it's very difficult for her, which is normally, it's just normal developmentally, but it's difficult for her to get out of that space of like, you know, the immediate frustration that comes from not doing something that like looks just perfect, right? Or is, is just perfect. And um, so just thinking about what are the ways that I can continue to like take from this experience we talked about the amateur culture and just get diving in and and making things and you know how can I like role model that and support her as she 
gets older to experience some of the joy that that comes with that right outside of like those confines of I don't know those those traditional expectations um my my favorite musical is Rent and there is a quote that says the opposite of war is in peace it's creation and I just want to continue to think about how I can bring more of that delightful creation and connection into my life and put that in the forefront. Paul, have you gone yet? No. Uh, Go Paul. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like everything everyone is saying is basically like, I'll co-sign all of it. Um, <laughs> I think we, like, I do think we were really, um, when I think about like the critical thinking and the like, sort of i don't know like young activism <laughs> and stuff i do think part of what we were we were pretty lucky that while we lived in a time with lots of problems like we were living in a time that was sort of generally there was some upswing like progressively and so the stuff we were doing felt like possible it felt like you could do things and they felt real and they felt like tangible and like you were having an impact. And I'm very thankful for that. Cause like I can see kids now living in the world today. And it's like, I don't know how you feel a whole lot of possibility in a world where like, like literal fascism is encroaching <laughs> everywhere. And that's scary. Right. And like, that's, it's a different it's a different context. Like we, we were living in a time where it did feel like some of the stuff we were doing had an impact. And I, I think that helped us feel like, uh, empowered. Um, but I also do think like, just like on a less big and a less like dark <laughs> note, um, just come, I don't know, like my personal experience was like coming from grade school where my best friend I would describe in retrospect as like a bully like was was like my best friend who I hung out with every single day and when I think back about it he was probably the, the worst bully I've ever had and coming to high school and meeting you guys but also a lot of other people and realizing like like friend friends can be different than that <laughs> you know like you can have people around you who like do care about you uh that was so valuable to me it was just like suddenly like being exposed to this scene and it's like friends but also punk and hardcore where it's like it doesn't have the like i mean childhood like nihilism that like i felt like i was coming from it felt like i was like being shown this world of like you can care about stuff you can you can do things you can care about each other you can just tell your friends you love them that's normal you could like like yeah. hug your hug your friends and tell them you love them when you see them and we did that constantly and like that wasn't not every kid did that right mm. um but that was so powerful to me to just like feel like um like there it was possible to like have a, a world or have an experience where like everyone cared about each other and cared about stuff cared about the world cared about <laughs> people cared about making things and like that that stuck with me i feel like that really did like 
change the like course of my life and like change what I thought was like possible or important. And it's something I feel like I've carried with me like for the rest of my life, which is pretty cool. Like I'm pretty grateful for that. Yeah, that's huge. Love that, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Luke, I think you're the last one next to me. What, what can I say after all of that? Um, <laughs> Sum it up, baby. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So, Paul, you talked about like the, like we can have a tangible impact and we can get something done. And, and there was definitely a part of that. But I think one of the other things that kind of stuck with me and, and in retrospect feels like it was sort of unusual and special was that like when I think about like I have lots of students who are very involved, right? Like they, in fact, they're like hyper scheduled. Like we thought we were busy and it's just, it's we're not on the same plane. Right. But I, I think part of it is that like the, the sort of um, quiet intrusion of capitalism into like how we keep score about what we've accomplished, like the LinkedIn version where it's like, it's like, it, it is about like, did you create an organization and has it grown in a measurable way? And did it like, does it now have chapters mm -hmm. elsewhere? And it's all about like, how do we scale this up and how do we repeat it? And how do we, and, and I think there was like a degree to which we were little Zen gardeners where it was like, it was just about like, you know, yeah, we're going to rake this all over and it's going to be gone, but it, it's about the like community that's built through the process. It's about the experience. And, and so like, I, I just sort of think about, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I was a little like nervous about this conversation. Cause I was like, I, there's a lot I, I'm embarrassed about as, in my, oh, yeah. and, like as we all are right. Like I had, you know, we, we listened to bad music and, and wrote bad poetry and, and had, I now look at it a lot of bad political takes. I had hot mm -hmm. takes. Um, <laughs> oh yes. But like, there was something beautiful about sort of just not needing perfection and not needing to scale it and just to sort of like, and not needing infrastructure to be there. Like, you know, where was the show? The show was in some guy's basement. The show was in a Legion hall. It was in a boys and girls club. Like, you know, what was our printing press? It was like, you know, sneaking in and, and, and using the school copier, you know, it was like, it was not, we didn't have the resources, but that was just sort of assumed and, and it wasn't expected and it allowed us to do things that, so in some ways it's like this funny, like the positive element of just scarcity and existing outside of a structure with all of the sort of, uh, you know, infrastructure in place for us was freeing in a lot of ways. And so I think about like, it, it's probably an important thing for us to think about how do we create those same kinds of conditions uh, that allow people to just like not worry about whether they're the best at it and not worry if they've got like all the resources they need to do it and just sort of jump in anyway. Um, I don't know that somebody else, Cam, do you want to like do a better job of summarizing all of this? No, I think that was fantastic. And, and I, I mean, I appreciate every, everything that, that all of you have said. And, you know, for me personally, I, these are things that I want to continue to really to entrench and to bring into my own life as well as share with others. I found it to be really inspiring in that way and, and a way to, to remember, you know, that the importance of of chasing these things and looking for that, you know, that fun and that that freedom in our lives. And I, you know, the word community has come up a, a bunch and 
And I really appreciate, to, especially Paul, what you were saying about just like bringing good people into your life, fostering those relationships and expressing it, telling people that, that you love them and sharing that. And I, I think a big part of this too, when I look at this group and think back about what made those times special, it, it was a lot of the, the doing, the participation, the getting involved, but it really also was it being with other people, knowing that we did have this group of folks and others, you know, Megan talked about our, our first, um, when we were trying to start our, our activist group and seeing people show up, like finding ways of doing things together and fostering those, those connections, um, is so important and it can be really easy to feel disconnected in our lives and, to kind of fall away from that and think that you're alone or think that you have to do it all by yourself. Um, so thank you all so much for being here and just even having this conversation and for reminding me of all of that and walking down memory lane and, and sharing some of these reflections also with other people. Um, it's really cool, you know, in a way it's like, it's kind of meta cause we're talking about this thing. We're talking about these memories, but we're also kind of doing it. <laughs> again, by being here and just creating a, you know, something new, creating a little, uh, little joint podcast episode to, to share. So thank you again for, uh, for all participating and for being the special people that you are. Thanks for listening to the storytelling with heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter, where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. Your story matters.